welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Robert Fonseca. It's uh, good to be back um... Last week, uh, my wife and I were away celebrating our 22nd wedding anniversary, and um, it was really, uh, really nice uh, to, we, were, we spent it out by the beach, and it was really nice to be in an area where uh, it was outside and nobody was wearing masks uh, because they were outside. So, and, you know, being at an outdoor restaurant, it just really reminded us of those glory days, you know, back in January and February uh, before uh, all the, everything shut down in our world, you know, when we could go where we wanted to, we could do what we want to, when we wanted to do it, right? We didn't have to uh, have church solely online. We were able to meet here uh, without masks uh, instead of meeting outside. Uh, we were able to go to restaurants. Do you guys remember that, eating in restaurants, inside of a restaurant? Uh, going into Starbucks, like uh, I like to all the time back in January and February, go in Starbucks and read, or I would study at Starbucks. Um, I also like to go, it reminded me of going to the library uh, at lunchtime. I work close to a library, and I'd go to the library at lunch, but now it's closed down, or even the bookstore. Just all those things that we enjoyed doing, uh, you know, but a few months ago. Those were the glory days, uh, going to amusement parks, uh, hosting weddings and parties and graduations and all the things that you could do at home. Do you guys remember those glory days? Well, that's what it felt like uh, last weekend when me and my wife were out and we were reminiscing about, oh, we can't wait till those days come back. It's going to be so glorious. It's going to be like the best thing ever. And I'm sure you guys have your own things that you like to do, that you're looking forward to doing again, and you're waiting for the Lord to, to move, that those things might happen. And, and actually, I say all this because it reminds me, of after studying this week in Isaiah chapter 60, which is where we'll be, uh, Isaiah himself is looking forward to some glorious days ahead of him for the days of Israel, and actually, it's going to be even better than what he expected. So you see, right now, as we're in the text of Isaiah chapter 60, um, this again is a prophecy. We'd like to remind you guys where we are uh, in the text and give you some background and some setting. Here is a prophecy that Isaiah is giving to the nation of Israel that remains in Judah about their return. Because they're going to be going into exile, into Babylon. And so he's talking about what it's going to be like when they return home. And he's imagining that through this prophecy. And again, he's talking about how it's going to be so much better. Right? So again, right now they're still in the land. He's saying, look, there's going to be a great and glorious return. A great restoration. And so as we read through the text this morning and really throughout the, the remainder of the book over the next, you know, we'll, we'll end this at the end of October as we finally get through the book. Remember as we read these things, I want you to keep in mind that this is a prophecy that Isaiah is giving that is going to be fulfilled in part 
when Israel returns back from this exile. But it's not going to be realized in its totality. Now, whether Isaiah understood that or not, we don't know. But you will see as we go through this that some of this language that he's given us seems like it's happening in the, dear, in the distant future. And it is. In one sense, it's going to happen uh, in the distant for them at the coming of Jesus Christ. That's going to be the beginning of the uh, final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then it is going to be actually realized in its totality at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So again, keep that in mind as we read. You know, you, you might be, as I said, you're going to be hearing some of this and you're saying, that's not happened yet. Or how can that happen in the future? And, and that's really the, the hard part of prophecy. It's read, written in a poetic language. And so there's some, some near-time fulfillment and then there's some later fulfillment and even some ultimate fulfillment. And I'm going to try to sort that out for you as we go through the text. So before we actually get into the text with that opening, let's go ahead and pray one more time. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning again that we get to read your word and study it here freely. And even though it's uh, not like it used to be, we look forward to that time where we will join together, together as a church in totality, worshiping you and praising you. But until that time, Lord God, we pray that you will continue to use uh, these opportunities to speak to your church. And we pray for this now, that you would do it through the text of Isaiah chapter 60, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's go to the text. I'm going to read the first three verses, and these first three verses are really a summary of Isaiah's, of the rest of this chapter, of what Isaiah is envisioning for this restoration. So this is the summary, and then verses 4 through 22 or a little more detail, and we'll talk about that. But let's look at the summary first, and let's read the first three verses. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So again, here is a summary of what Isaiah is going to describe. And it's really a call by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah to Judah, who's the nation of Israel at this time, about their future. Again, remember, they're not in captivity yet, but they're going into captivity. And Isaiah is telling them there's going to be a glorious restoration where God is going to say, arise. God is going to say, shine. And really what he's telling them is that your salvation has come. Your deliverance for captivity at some point in the future is going to happen. So arise and shine for your light has come. And that light, again, is the salvation of God. In a literal sense, God is going to bring Israel out of Babylon sometime in the future. And then in a spiritual sense, the word light is used often to talk about a spiritual deliverance. How God shines his light on us and opens the eyes of the blind as well. And if you look in verse 2, he gives this comparison of darkness. He says, for behold, darkness will cover the earth and a deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear before you. So again, God is making this distinction that he's going to call his people out literally and spiritually as well. He's going to free his people not only from Babylon, but he's going to free all people that come to him from their sins. 
Again, darkness is often used to describe ignorance of God's laws or sin, and so God, our sinful character. And so God is saying, arise and shine for your deliverance has, has come, your salvation has come, and there's going to be this separation between light and darkness when God comes. And so that holds for the nation of Israel at this time and, and for all people, as we'll see in a few moments. And so let's look at verse 3 now, because this is the result of what happens when God delivers his people. And verse 3, the result is going to be that, that God works in his people to do a few things. Look, at it. it says, and a nation will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your risings. So God saves his people and uses them as a testimony of his salvation for all people in hopes that all people will be drawn to him. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying nations are going to come to you. Kings are going to come because of what God has done for them. God's people, again, are to be a witness to the world around them. Remember, the nation of Israel was called to be a witness to all the nations, and God was going to use them. And this theme of this point is carried over into the New Testament as well. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and I want to show you verses 14 through 16. And we studied this a few weeks ago um, a little more in depth. But here Jesus is using similar language about what the believers are supposed to do, are supposed to be. Because here Jesus is speaking to the multitudes of people who are going to follow him. And he says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on your lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this is similar language that, that Jesus is using to what Isaiah used, describing what God's people are supposed to be. They are to be a representative of who God is. They are to be a light to the world. And so that's a summary of the chapter. Isaiah is saying, God is going to call you back out of captivity, Israel, and you are going to draw people to God by your witness. And that's what it says. And so let's go in now and look at verses 4 of the remainder of the chapter and look how God talks about the restoration. What is this restoration of the nation going to be? And then again, remember, the fulfillment is not going to be actually realized in totality until the second coming of Jesus. So the restoration process will consist of this. And here's the first point this morning, if you're taking notes, that God will draw his people from among, from among the world. And this is in verse 4. Look at verse 4. So he says, lift up your eyes, round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. So the picture is this of the nation of Israel returning back to their homeland from among all the other nations where they've been scattered. This is going to happen in the future, Isaiah is saying. And even in verse 9, you could see this also uh, described, skip down to verse 9, and we'll cover this in a little more detail in a moment. But verse 9 also says, Surely the coastlands will wait for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them. So again, the picture is God drawing his people out from all the other nations. 
Now, as we see this, we also know, and you and I may are, excuse me, are examples of this, that God calls his people out from among the world even today. Not just uh, the nation of Israel, but Gentiles as well. Those who are not from the nation of Israel. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, here the Apostle Paul is describing this exact point where he says, and speaking for the Lord, Therefore come out from their midst, be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So again, you see that dual fulfillment where one, God is going to call faithful Israel to himself, and then God is now calling all men and women to himself to come out from the world, to be separate. So here you have that first point. God is drawing all his people from all over the world. Let's move to the second point of restoration that we see. And that can be found in verses 5 through 14, where God will accept the worship of his people. If you've been following with us through the, through the series in Isaiah, you see that over and over again, Isaiah talks about how God is not receiving Israel's worship because of their sins. And Pastor John talked about this last week, how God hides his face from his people, turns his face from his people, and doesn't accept their worship. So in this restoration process, you see God using language that he's returning all the things that he's been rejecting from Israel, or how he's doing this reversal of fortunes for the nation of Israel. And so that's what this is talking about, that God's going to, in his restoration process of bringing Israel back to the land, that God will accept the worship of his people once again. And so let's read that. Let's start in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, Then you will see and be radiant, and your hearts will thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you, the wealth of nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Epah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense. They will bear good news of the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Keter will be gathered to you. And the rams of Nebaoth will minister to you. They will go up with you. They will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. So here you see God talking about the wealth of nations coming back into the nation of Israel to build up the kingdom of God for the specific and express purpose of glorifying God, for worshiping God. Let me just show you a few verses where it says that. At the end of verse 6, again, it says that these things will happen and will, bring, and will bear good news of the praise of the Lord. And then again in verse 7, that they will go up with acceptance to my altar and shall glorify my glorious house. These are just a couple of examples of God is using all this wealth that is going to come back with the nation of Israel to build up his temple again to show that God will accept the worship of his people. And not only will God do that, in worship, <clears throat> part of worship is glorifying God. And so God is going to glorify himself through the people's worship. That's why God is doing all this. God is not saying that, hey, you guys came back because you're so good, because you've done great things for me. No, it's God who is doing themselves. 
Look at verse 10 with me in Isaiah chapter 60. It says, And foreigners will build up your walls, and kings will minister to you. And then look at this. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Isaiah is stressing here uh, in his prophecy that it is God who is doing all these things. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God has over and over said through Isaiah that, you know what? I'm the one that's going to put you into captivity. I'm the one that's going to drive you out of the land. I'm the one that's going to bring foreign nations in. Why? Because they have sinned against him. But he also adds, and you see it here at verse 10 at the bottom, that in my favor I'm going to have compassion, that God is going to bring them out. So God not only disciplines his people, he also brings them out of that discipline. He has compassion on them. He forgives them. And in our context this morning, he's going to restore his people. And if you think about it, that's true even in our own salvation. It is the Lord who makes our worship acceptable in his sight. Again, it is not that we're such great people that the Lord said, man, I hope you worship me because you're such a good man or a good woman. I really need you to be part of my church. No, it is God who does all things. God is the one who opens our heart. God is the one who opens our eyes and our ears. It is God the one who makes us right before him. And let me give you just a couple of verses in regards to this. How it shows how God offered himself as an acceptable offering and made us right with himself. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, He made him who knew no sin to be our sin, uh, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God became sin in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, taking upon his sin upon himself, and then we became righteous. It's that great exchange, what God did for us. Also in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and was raised to life for our justification. Again, you see, it's God doing all these things. God in Christ died for our sins. God in Christ was raised to life for our justification. Again, it is all of God's doing in salvation. God makes us, our worship, acceptable in His sight because of what the Lord has done. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, says this, It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Again, it is all God. It's, it's because of God that we are in Christ Jesus. God has called us to himself. God has opened our eyes and done all these great things for us. So just as Isaiah is saying, hey, this is the restoration process if you think about it, that's our own restoration process. When we come to the Lord, when we are drawn out from His people, our worship is now acceptable in God's sight. Again, before we were believers, our worship was not acceptable in our sight. We may have worshipped Him out of ignorance or inner ignorance, but God did not receive it. Again, if you were uh, with us last week, uh, Pastor John had shared that. It's not that God can't hear us. All right? It's not that he can't see us or his arms so short, but it's our sins that separate us from God. Until God makes us right, 
then all the things that we do are acceptable in his sight in regards to worship. And so here again, in this restoration process, we see that God is making it possible. Let's drop down to verses 11 through 14 now, and we will see that not only uh, does God accept the nation of Israel, but as we've been talking, and as you already know if you're a believer, God also included the Gentile nations, those who are not of the house of Israel. And I believe verses 11 through 14 make some allusions to that there's going to be more people coming in from around the world. It's not just the nation of Israel. So he says this in a very prophetic and poetic way. Look at this. Let's read verses 11 through 14. It says, And your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I shall make the place of my feet glorious. And the sons of those who afflict you will come bowing to you. And those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So here... I believe this, this language that Isaiah is using is to illustrate that, you know what, God's kingdom, because he's talking about Zion, is open, it's going to be open to all people in this restoration process. And so that's why the gates are open continually, day and night, and you see foreign kings and foreign nations coming in to serve Israel, who serves God not only with themselves, but also with their wealth, showing that they're wholly committed to serving God. And if they don't do that, verse 12 says that they will perish. They will be utterly ruined. And so I think these are allusions to outside nations joining the covenant of God. And again, you and I are recipients of that because we are, well, at least me, I'm not a a Jewish person. I'm a Gentile. And God has flung open the gates of salvation for all people, which includes me. And so praise, I praise God for that. So again, part of this restoration that Isaiah is talking about again is number one, that God will draw his people from among the world. Number two, God will accept the worship of his people. And then number three, we see in verses 15 through 16, is that God will honor himself through his people. God will bring glory to himself by using the salvation of men and women. It's an amazing thing to think of that God would use someone like me to glorify himself as I submit myself to God. And the same goes for anyone else who would submit themselves to the Lord. It's a great honor and privilege to represent the Lord. Look at verse 15 through 16 now. It says, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. Now, I want you to remember that a lot of the language that he's using 
is, is, is a reversal of what has been happening to the nation of Israel. Israel has not been an honor. They actually were forsaken, and they were going to be hated. There's earlier prophecies that says people will walk by the nation and go, this is the nation that said they served God, and they will wag their head at them and make fun of them and mock them. And God is saying, in the restoration, people will look towards you and say, wow, look what God has done. Right? The nation that all these nations that went in and pillaged Israel will now are now envisioned as supporting the nation of Israel or God's people. And that's what you see in verse 16. It says, You will also suck the milk of nations and will suck the breasts of kings. And then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Again, the land is now being supported by outside nations. And this is something that's happened over and over again in Scripture. Remember in the book of Exodus, when God brought his people out of captivity in Egypt and brought them and was bringing them into the, to the promised land, they were given or took things from Egypt. Right? They were given treasures to support their journey. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled in the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah, during the, at the end of captivity, was sent back to the land and the king gave him orders that, you know what, everyone, give Nehemiah what he needs to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So here you literally see the nations supporting Israel. And Israel in one sense, you know, taking from the other nations. And so God honored himself through this. And so the fourth point is this, that God will rule over his people. In verses 17 through 22, this is what we're going to see in the restoration, right? Again, at one point here through um, Isaiah, God is just saying, I'm forsaken you. I'm giving you over to Babylon. I want nothing to do with you anymore because you guys are not really my people. And in the restoration, you're saying, you know what? You are my people. I'm going to rule over you now as your God. And as you know, throughout history, this has not been fully consummated, right? Because not, you know, God is not literally ruling and reigning here on this earth. He now rules and reigns through the hearts of his people within the church, both Jew and Gentile. So this is one of those prophecies where it's been fulfilled. We see a glimpse of it, but it's going to be fulfilled in a, in a deeper way, in a, in a more permanent way at his second coming. And you'll see allusions to that in this text. And some of you may even remember what it says in Revelation. You may see the similarities, and we'll even read through that in a moment. So God's going to rule over his people. Look at verse 17. It says this, Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. And instead of iron, I will bring silver. And instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron, I will make peace your administrator and your righteousness, your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in the land, nor devastation or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. So here God is saying, when I rule over you, I'm going to bless you. Right? I'm going to give you the best. 
I think that's what Isaiah is meaning when he says, I'm going to, instead of bronze, I give you gold. Instead of iron, I give you silver. God gives us so much more if we allow him to rule and reign in our life. He knows what is best for his people. And so that's what Isaiah is telling uh, Israel here, that when you come back, God's going to give you so much more when you return back to him, when he puts you back in his land, and he is allowed to rule over you. And how true is that in our own lives when we allow God to do what he needs to do in our lives? And we don't try to take our life back and do things the way that we think they need to be done. To be done. We're, you know, it would be like us saying, you know, I want this bronze, whatever it represents. And God saying, no, I have gold to give you. Just let me rule over your life. And not only that, it speaks in verse 17 and 18 of this, that God rules in peace and righteousness, right? He says, I will make peace your administrator and righteousness your overseer. You see, when God rules, he elaborates that in verse 18, there's going to be no more violence, that we're going to have security when God ultimately rules and reigns. You know, if you're putting your trust in this world, we may have peace for a while, but each of, us, each of us know that men's hearts are not perfect. Men's hearts are not wholly good. And you know what? No matter who's leading us in this country or any other country, they will not ultimately rule with peace or righteousness. No matter your political affiliation, again, no matter what country you live in, we know that, that men's hearts are ultimately evil and they are corrupted by sin and they will not rule in righteousness. As much as we want, you know, we have this expectation that come November, man, this party's going to get in or this party's going to stay in and they're going to make things better, or at least that's what they tell us. And we know from experiences they won't. They just can't, right? Not unless they allowed God to rule through their lives, which is what we should be praying for as believers, right? Is that our uh, governmental authorities would submit themselves to God and allow us to live peaceably, but we know again that ultimately none of this is going to happen until Christ returns. We experience it in a small way, right, as believers. We live in peace, peace with God, and in righteousness, the righteousness of God. But we haven't experienced it fully, where that's all that exists. But there is a day when that is coming. So when God rules over his people, he's going to bless us. He's going to rule in peace and righteousness, and he will guide us uh, day and night. Look at verse 19. He says this, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor, the brightness, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun, your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane. For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, and the least one will become a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. What is God saying here again is that God's going to guide us day and night. Right? That's what verse 19 is, is telling us, that whether it's day or night, God's going to be ruling. God's not going to you know, leave. God doesn't you know, shut the doors of his administration. 
God doesn't take a vacation. He says he's going to lead us, and we're going to have an everlasting light, right? And that's going to be our God. And again, Isaiah is reminding Israel, this is what will happen when you come home. Again, he speaks in this great restoration that this is going to happen. And as you know, this doesn't happen until the second coming. And we don't have all the times to get into the intricacies of that. But the main point is that when you let God rule, He's there to guide you day and night. We have a standard of living. And then in verse 20, it reminds us that, you know what? God's going to ultimately take all of our mourning away. Right? The days of your mourning will be finished. Again, the mourning for Israel will be with their captivity. He's saying when you come back, that's going to be gone. You're no longer going to be held in captivity. And how, much, how, so, how true is that for us as believers today? That God has taken us out of that abysmal mourning over our sins anymore. Because God has done away with them. And I think another example is our mourning in death. Right When somebody dies in the Lord, we no longer mourn for them. We have a great hope that they're with the Lord and that we're going to see them again. We as believers don't mourn death as those who have no hope. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 13. He said this, Brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you will not grieve like the rest who are without hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. This is the great assurance or great hope that believers have, that our loved ones who love the Lord, who are with the Lord in this life, will one day when they die or I die, will be joined together again, will be reunited. Death is not permanent end if you're in the Lord. That is what's so exciting about, I know for me, in the Christian life and at my dad's funeral, it was like one of the best worship services I ever had. Because I was praising God, literally like, God, you're so awesome. Like, you know what? Even though my dad is gone, I'm going to see him again. I'm going to hold him again. It's going to be even better than I can imagine. And I know he was with the Lord and his body was, was you know, I don't know what state it is in, because I know he doesn't receive his new body until the second coming, but he was so much better off, even though we miss him. And so I didn't mourn like other people mourn, who like they'll never have that hope of seeing him again. And the great thing is that that doesn't have to be like that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So when God's ruling over his people, he's going to bless us. He's going to rule in peace and righteousness. He's going to guide us day and night. He's going to take away that morning. And he's going to make us right. Look at verse 21. I read it early, but I want to read it with this context now. He says, then all your people will be righteous. We're going to be made righteous in this restoration process. And isn't that so much true for us now? Those of us who have come to Christ, I read verses earlier, that we are now made righteous. Even in our sin, God sees us as righteous because of what Christ has done. Because we've accepted the work of Christ on the cross. And so we are made righteous. And guess what? One day at the second coming, when all evil is banished, we will always do the right thing. We will always think the right thing. We will always say the right thing. Imagine, won't that be nice, especially for us husbands? We always say the wrong thing to our wives and we think we're saying the right thing. That I'll never say a wrong thing to my wife again in heaven. So that, that's going to be great. Um, 
And also in verse 21, as God rules in our life, we are going to have this permanent possession of God. God will never leave us or forsake us. Look again in verse 21. It says, They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hand, that I may be glorified. God is never going to leave us or forsake us. Remember again, here in Isaiah, God is forsaking His people. He's going to allow them to go to captivity because of their sins. And God has every right to do that. He would have every right to do that to us now. But knowing His compassion, He loved us and drew Him to Himself. And he's saying, you know what? Once you're mine, you are mine forever, right? Scripture tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. And Jesus himself told his disciples he is with them always, even until the end of the age. And so we have that blessed assurance as well. Also, when God rules over his people, Scripture here tells us they're going to be influential. Look at verse 22. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. Even in their weakness, God is going to make these people strong. I mean, think of the nation Israel even today. Even though it is a small little nation, God has protected them over and over throughout world history. And it seems like the world revolves around what's going on in the nation of Israel. But even us today as believers, God can make us influential. A small, he did that with the early apostles. Twelve men went out into the world, influenced other disciples, and all those disciples went out and influenced the world who you and I am a direct descendant of because God did it. He made the smallest one and they became a clan, the least one a mighty nation. And at the end, he says, you know what? I, the Lord, will hasten in its time. The Lord is the one who's going to make these things happen. And when will we fully realize this? All these, you know, all these things you may be saying, hey, these sound great, Robert, but have, they haven't yet happened. We haven't seen this prophecy come to pass. When will it come to pass? Well, we're told in Revelation chapter 21, turn there with me, starting in verse 10, and I would encourage you to read, uh, to read the rest of 21 and 22. We're just going to read a few verses in Revelation 21. And you're going to hear identical language used by John here in Revelation that Isaiah used. And I think this is the, the final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy coming to ultimate fruition. Look at verse 10 in Revelation. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So here again, just like in Isaiah, the picture is of the holy city. Right? In Isaiah, God, he seems to be talking to a city and then also to the people and the people within the city. And sometimes it seems like, which one is he talking to? Well, here John is doing the same thing. He says, here this holy city this rest, this restored new Jerusalem on the new heaven and new earth, right? So drop down now to verse 22, and we're going to read through verse 27, right? Because 1 through 21 just talks about the gates, and, and just for time's sake, we're not going to go through that. Again, I encourage you to read on your own. He says in verse 22, And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are His temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it. 
for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp, its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nation into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall come into it, but only these whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hopefully you caught all the, you know, the language that sounded similar to Isaiah, that this is the ultimate uh, consummation of Isaiah's prophecy, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem where God dwells and where God's people dwell, where there's peace and righteousness, right? There's no one, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination or lying. This is true peace. And so what was Isaiah's encouragement to his people through all this? And again, it's in the summary at the very beginning. Arise and shine. Right? These things are going to happen. These things are true. So arise and shine. It reminds me of that, that children's worship, you know, children's like Sunday school song. You might have learned it. Arise and shine and give God the glory. You might be singing it now and it'll be stuck in your head all day. But that's good because it gets the main point across. Is This is what Isaiah is telling to his people at the very beginning. Arise and shine for light has come. And that's really where we'll find these last two points of, of, of the sermon, and it's the application. First is this, for those of you who are believers, for those of you whom all these things are happening to, you've been restored to God, and they will happen in the end at His second coming, we need to rise up and shine for the Lord. Salvation has come. We need to be a light and a witness to the world around us, just like Israel was called to do here in Isaiah, just like the church was told in the New Testament. So are we, as God's children, we are to rise and shine for the Lord. Secondly is this, those of you who maybe are listening this morning and saying, you know, I don't know the Lord, I'm not sure uh, I'm His child, but I want to come to the Lord. That same thing applies to you, what Isaiah said to his people in six, chapter 60, verse 1. Arise and shine, right? For the Lord has come. You need to rise up and come to the Lord, right? When they were in Babylon, or when they, yeah, when they're in Babylon and God calls them to himself, they had the choice to either come back to the land or to stay in Babylon. And each and every one of us has that choice this morning as well. Will you rise up and come to the Lord, or will you stay in Babylon, so to speak, in exile, in darkness, in captivity. I pray that you would not do that, that instead you would answer that call that God has, rise and shine, for your light has come. Let me close with this one last verse in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 14. And it's, it's similar to what I just said. The Apostle Paul writes this, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that's my call to those of you who don't know the Lord. Arise, wake up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Come and experience all that the Lord has. Experience His restoration of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we again thank You for a great morning of t in Your Word, seeking and reading about Your promises, about Your restoration not only of this world, but 
of us as individuals, if we rise up, if we wake up and come to you. And I pray this morning, Lord God, if there's anybody hearing this message this morning who does not yet know you, who has not answered your call of salvation, that they have not seen your light, have chosen not to follow up, today they would. Lord, that you would soften their hearts and their, open their eyes and their mind, that they would see you, that they would understand you, and that they would believe on you and give their lives to you. I pray for them to do that. And I pray for us who have answered your call of salvation, that, Lord God, we would rise and shine and give you the glory for all things in our life, that we would be a light to the nations and a witness and testimony of your love towards your people. Help us to do that this week, Lord. We pray and we thank you for your word. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.